Well, we sang, uh, we read already the first third of our sermon text today with Bill. We have two more texts we're going to read here. The first is in Luke chapter 24. This is on the Church Bible 1218. Luke 24 and beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of our God. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb And found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and indeed, and and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening. And the day is far spent, and he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, 
and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. And then turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll read verses 24 through 31. This is found on page 1250 of the Church Bible. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the prints of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days... His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your, your perfect word. 
without fault, without misprint. We thank you. And we ask now that your spirit would apply it to our hearts with great joy and with faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the Gospels are not unclear about the, the number of witnesses to this historic event. And uh, since we don't have any visitors here today, I, I, I know that you all believe in the historic event. And so in, instead of preaching a sermon arguing that this was historic, I thought this year, I didn't know we wouldn't have visitors, but <laughs> I thought this year, instead of, instead of one of these sermons, which I've preached and I think are appropriate, looking at the historicity of it, instead I thought I would ask a different question this year. Understanding that this man, Jesus, really did rise from the tomb and is living. What kind of man came out of that tomb? Well, sadly, in this, this fallen and very torturous world, sometimes when a traumatic event happens, it changes someone's personality. If someone has uh, health issues and, and then they get better, but sometimes they get better with a different personality. And sadly, often it's, n- it's not necessarily for the better. So what kind of man walked out of that tomb? Well, the Gospels don't leave us with a vague answer to that. They leave us with a very clear glimpse of Jesus coming out of that tomb, but with a a specific personality, it's the same personality he had before. And what do we see when we look at the events uh, just of that that first day as he came out of the tomb? Uh, And maybe we'll spill over a little bit into some of those 39 days following. Uh, But predominantly thinking this morning about what we call Easter. What personality do we see come out of that tomb that day? This king emerges into the light of the resurrection day. First, we see a king who cares for the grieving. A king who cares for the grieving. We find an example of that given here very clearly. Many are grieving. And many of those that we see grieving are women. But Mary is given this this place for the rest of history of being the example to us of of the chief mourner at the grave of Jesus Christ. I think that's actually why when you read the the four different gospel accounts, it, it has proven a little difficult for some commentators to figure out the order of Mary's events for that day, because it feels like she shows up with one friend, but then it feels like she shows up with a big group of friends, and then she seems to be going off to the disciples, but then she seems to be by herself, then she seems to be coming to the grave with two of the disciples, and then she seems to be by herself again. Why? But I, I, I think 
I think a big part of the resolution of that is simply to say, she's grieving. And no matter what she does, wherever she goes, she keeps finding herself drawn back to the grave. She is so deeply grieving that even when the apostles go home, she lingers. You can't budge her from the spot. She goes and obediently tells the disciples, but then she's right back there at the grave. She is the chief mourner. She is, as John believes and goes home, and Peter apparently doesn't quite believe yet, and he goes home. She is quickly alone, as mourners often are in grief. And she is in such a deep pit of grief that it seems nothing can comfort her. It shouldn't surprise us if we've ever experienced grief that we feel alone and perhaps feel inconsolable. Even if we see other people, it feels like And this may not even be true half the time. It seems like no one knows my grief. No one must care. Peter and John left. Do they not care? The the other nine didn't even bother to come. And where are the other women that she came with? Alone and inconsolable here are the angels but she she doesn't see angels she sees presumably in her mind those servants who must have come to remove the body where did you take him she hears a question from christ but all she sees is a gardener And yet she isn't left alone. The king who came out of that tomb, please marvel with me at this. Peter didn't even see him first. Sure, those foolish disciples thought that the most important thing to say was that he appeared to Simon. Now suddenly they believe because he appeared to Simon despite the fact that the two men on the road make it clear Mary has already gone and told them, I saw him. He comes to the one who is grieving. He draws near. He comforts. He raises her to her feet. And he gives a message that we couldn't We could misread as not really caring about her. We could. Go and tell my disciples the people I really care about. I go to my father and your father. But no, that would be the wrong way to read it, wouldn't it? Mary gets to be the first messenger to the eleven. And when she faithfully reported Christ's message to them, I have no doubt that the words that came out of her mouth were, he ascends to his father and our father. 
the your that Christ says does not exclude her. That is the first word of of comfort sent through another human. (laughs) Your father. Your father. Mary's father in heaven. Christ comes near to comfort. J.C. Ryle comments, It is a certain fact that those who love Christ the most fervently and cleave to him the most closely will always enjoy the most communion with him and feel the most witness in, of the Spirit in their hearts. And that's what we find here. Mary grieved perhaps the most deeply. And she has him come near personally to comfort. The king we see emerge from that empty tomb is one who comforts those who are grieving. Secondly, we find in these accounts that he is a king who instructs the confused. Here we have a, a sample of that, these two men on the road. All of them are confused, right? Again, we're given a sample. A sample. Two men walking on the road. Christ gives them probably the bulk of the afternoon preaching a sermon that makes mine look short. Sermon text, Genesis through Malachi. Probably not every point in there, but certainly a rich sermon. When, when I was uh, uh, first, the first time I had to preach in front of a room full of elders and pastors for my licensure, I was given three texts of scripture to pick from to preach. And one of them was this text, and I picked Isaiah 55 instead. Because to think of preaching on Christ's sermon on the entire Old Testament. How do you summarize that briefly? Well, some, some, including Ryle, for example, have done a good job trying to, to summarize for us that sermon by implication, of course, not having it recorded. But he comes near these men, and, and you see the, the confusion. It's not all absolute rejection of Christ's resurrection. It's a confusion that doesn't know what to do with Christ's resurrection. You, you see their confusion, they're, they're struggling. It's based on a seeming discrepancy between faith and the facts, as all gospel confusion always is, isn't it? Uh, faith and facts, and so... Well, they say, we thought that he would redeem. But the facts tell us that he's dead. Mary tells us that she saw him and some other women. But Peter and John don't seem quite as sure. The struggle, what what do we believe? And what do we do? And where do we go forward from here? They're confused. Their their faith is at an all-time low. And he comes near to preach to them 
I want you to consider how our weak faith tends to miss a lot of things. Think about even the words they used. We had thought that he would be the one to redeem. They've just celebrated the Passover. What is necessary to celebrate the Passover redemption? Death. What is necessary to celebrate the redemption on the Day of Atonement? Death. What is necessary in every moment of redemption in the Old Testament? Death. And yet their very sentence, we thought that he was going to redeem, but he's dead. To be fair, the Old Testament never said the priest had to die. We would probably be just as confused. And we have that hindsight of, of uh, fresher memories of what John the Baptist said. Here's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. First words, first sermon that any of the disciples heard as they saw John point to Christ should have told them right then how it was going to end. The Lamb of God that comes to take away sins takes away sins by dying and bearing the sins away. But they're confused. They disconnect those two things. And how easily we disconnect the doctrine of the scriptures when we look at events in our lives. When providence is dark, it's hard to connect the dots of the doctrine of providence in scripture. Christ comes near and he preaches this sermon about himself, showing that it was necessary from Genesis to Malachi for them, Genesis to Second Chronicles, that it was necessary, not, not because they had fewer books, they just had the books ordered differently. Necessary, straight through, that the Christ must suffer and so redeem. We're, we're slow to see, aren't we? I think at the very least on the road, they got maybe this far. They, they had their triumphalism removed. But their faith is still struggling. There's enough faith there that they say, please abide with us. But they still don't know who this rabbi is until he breaks the bread and gives it to them, and they see Christ. Who came from the tomb? He, he isn't one who groans at the confusion of fools and moves on from them. He's a king who comes to the confused and instructs them. Third, he's a king who rebukes the doubters. Well, maybe this is a, a part we wish he had left in the tomb. Rebuke. But we need rebuke. 
when I say doubters, we all think of Thomas. I, I always feel bad for Thomas. I think he gets a, a bad deal. I don't think he cared. What a great way to share the gospel. Your name's Doubting Thomas? Oh yeah, let me tell you my story. But, but he's not the only doubter that day, is he? Mark makes that very clear. Mark, chapter 16, verse 14, when telling the story of Christ coming that first Easter evening to the eleven, it says this, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. They all got rebuked. Thomas just got his a day or two later. But they're doubting, aren't they? It's a gentle rebuke that Thomas receives. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Such an important verse for us to hear. I feel increasingly in evangelicalism, uh, I, I hear teachers saying, Things like, it's good to be skeptical. Look at doubting Thomas. And Christ wants to encourage you to have your doubts. That's the voice of evangelicalism today. And it's a voice that, that isn't based on the text they claim it is. Because this text of doubting Thomas doesn't say, blessed are you for being skeptical. Blessed are you for demanding evidence. Blessed are you for doubting. Christ comes to the doubter, but it's with the rebuke we need. Stop being unbelieving. Stop demanding more. Because your skepticism, it it will not believe, though one be raised from the dead. Who said that? You remember Christ's story of the rich man and Lazarus? Abraham, Father Abraham, said, Your living brother's rich man will not believe, though you be raised from the dead. And that's been the skeptical story of church history. Christ, risen indeed. Lazarus, risen for the remainder of his life. And during those 40 days, hundreds of others raised. According to the Gospels, hundreds raised, who then ascended into heaven with our Lord. And they didn't believe. And men continue to not believe. No, what the world needs to hear is not go ahead and be skeptical. It needs the gospel, which comes with a rebuke. Stop being unbelieving. Blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. Why are you blessed? You who have never seen Christ in the flesh and yet have believed. 1 John chapter 1, John makes sure we are aware of why we're blessed. 
because as we believe, having not seen, our joy is full in Christ. Christ brings a rebuke. We, we need rebukes. Indeed, Hebrews 12, if you've never been rebuked by Christ, are you really his son, his daughter? The Lord rebukes those he loves. And the risen king came out of the tomb rebuking those he loved. And then finally, he's a king who comes out of the tomb restoring the penitent. It doesn't stop with a rebuke. He restores. Every single one of the apostles had enough sin from that previous week to need restoration. Christ declared that they would abandon him. They all flippantly ignored him. Everyone ignored that. In fact, told Christ he was wrong. Not me. They broke their vows of diligent steadfastness. I won't leave you, even if everyone else does. Even if Peter leaves you, I won't leave you, Lord. They fell asleep when their loved one was broken and troubled in the garden more than once. They ran when he was taken captive and did not die with him. A glorious part of God's providence because he would later turn the world upside down using them. But they all needed restoration that day, didn't they? And he brings it. He brings the promise of it through the first messages sent through the women and then through Mary. Go to them and say, your father, your father, you haven't been cast off. Go to Galilee and there you will see him. He's not going to shun you. Those are just the promises sent through the women. He doesn't wait for Galilee. He doesn't leave them hanging, does he? That very day he appeared to Simon and the rest. And we don't have Simon's experience recorded for us of being restored. It's just told that he, he met with Simon. But hear the first words he said to all of them together. Peace to you. Not you no good, lying, faithless, weak, pathetic excuse for friends. After all I've done for you. Thank God we don't hear him say that ever. After all I've done for you. No, what he says is after all I've done for you. Peace to you. 
And of course, Peter is the the primary example. I, I believe it's T.V. Moore who says Peter's restoration is a four-part event. Or, or maybe it's Thomas Goodwin. I was reading both. One of them refers to this, this multi-stage event. First, it's the look. It's the look as Christ was taken out to be executed. Peter looks up and sees Christ looking at him and he weeps. That's stage one of restoration, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Stage two, stage two, tell, tell my brethren and Peter. That's how Mark records how the women brought the message. In case Peter thinks he doesn't get to be counted as one of my disciples anymore. He's done too much. He's not in the club. Well, say to him, he will meet you in Galilee. That's stage two, the promise. Stage three, he has appeared to Simon. Maybe significant that he uses Peter's name before, from before. He appeared to Simon. But then there's stage four, of course, which is what we all think of. It's the end of the Gospel of John. It's not, not really Peter being restored in terms of forgiveness. He's already received that from Christ earlier on Easter. It's, it's Peter being restored to his office of apostle. But we still learn something about this risen king in what we see there. How does he restore his children? Does he put you on probation? Does he restore you? But, you know, Peter, go back to fishing for a while, and then we'll reassess in a year or two whether, whether I'm going to use you or not as my disciple. No, the, the words I think we often miss, because we're spending time on the, the love discussion there, which is worth spending time on, is Christ's final words. Follow me. What does Christ restoring his children look like? Follow me. Remember how John began his gospel. And Christ said to Peter, Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of man. And after all that Peter does to rend that relationship and lose his right to be a disciple, Christ restores him, saying, Let's pick up where we were. Be my disciple. Follow me. This is the kind of king who came out of that tomb. Well, why does all of this matter so much? I want us to think about this king who came forth because I think Thomas Goodwin is quite right when he writes that the king who came forth with a glorified body needs no more transformation and change. Whoever Christ was as he walked out of that tomb and whatever his personality that day is the personality 
and the man we should expect for all eternity. He rose with the body fit for an eternal existence in paradise and with the personality that he would have for all eternity. So whatever we see him being towards people, sinners, on that first Easter is what we should expect for ourselves today and what we should expect to enjoy for all eternity. You sinners here today, do you grieve over your sin? Do you grieve over a lot of other things? The brokenness that we know in this world. Do you, like Mary, grieve beside perhaps feeling like it's just far too many graves? Christ is your chief comforter. That's who he is. In the midst of your grief, he promises to come near. He declares, I am going to my father, but I will not leave you orphans in grief. But I send my spirit to comfort you, to be with you in your greatest trouble. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world offers peace and comfort in affliction and grief and sorrow. Not as they, I give you peace. He is your chief comforter through his spirit, assuring you of his love, embracing you in his arms, and declaring to you again and again the promise of the future in the face of temporary sorrow. Is he able to understand your sorrow? Yes. That's important, isn't it? That the person seeking to comfort you has known sorrow himself, herself. He has known our grief. He has borne our sorrow. Does does he know the depth of your sin? He has felt the depth of your sin. He has borne it, not part, as Pastor Sargent so beautifully preached Friday night. Not a part of it. Not taking just the sin you were born with and leaving you to endure what you've done since then, or just taking the majority of it and leaving you a little bit of purgatory ahead. But he has borne away all your sin on the tree. He knows that which you mourn over. And he is grieved beside far too many graves. And he it is who in heaven now and through his spirit in you is your chief comforter. Do you have great confusion in this chaotic, hate-filled world? Does your own inner struggle for faith and against indwelling sin leave you baffled day by day? It is he who through his word and his spirit will speak to your confusion and lead you in all truth, instructing you 
through His inspired Word. And He has not left you without instruction, without answers that are satisfactory to your confusion. And where He has not given us answers to the questions we want, when it is a question of the secret things that belong to Him alone, He still gives us an answer. He gives us all we need in the scriptures to trust him and rest in him. Do you doubt despite his word? Do you find yourself wayward and wandering? It is the same king whose heart is so concerned that he will not leave you in doubt if you are his child. He will not leave you in unbelief, but he will rebuke you as a loving father rebukes his children so that you might grow and mature. Yes, he rebuked the 11 doubters and through these 11, he turned the world upside down. And this he did through men who, as they turned the world upside down, were no longer doubting. He rebuked that they might believe. Do you doubt? Listen to his word, his rebuke, and believe and trust. Are you penitent knowing that you are indeed a great sinner? Then know that this king pardons the greatest sin. He offered himself to satisfy God's justice for you and offers his righteousness to you. This king doesn't write blank pardons for all the universe, but know that it is this same king who particularly pardoned Peter, who pardoned the eleven, who pardoned his half-brother who had doubted for many years, who pardoned Saul persecutor of the church. It is this same king who lives above, ready to pardon, pleading the pardon of sinners like you. Can he do it? He's the one who rose. For death could not hold him. He is the one who quenched the eternal fires of hell on behalf of his own, as some of the Puritans used to refer to it. He is the one who slammed shut the gates of hell and barred them so that they could not prevail against you. Nothing can drag you through those gates if Christ has shut them for you. Look to him. Believe in him. Let us rejoice in him.